finding freedom in truth, pursuing truth in scripture. This is the Mormon Hope Podcast with Brandon Vaughn and Dave Malinak. Welcome into the Mormon Hope Podcast. I'm Brandon Vaughn along with Dave Malinak. We're two Baptist pastors who live and pastor in the heart of Mormon country, Utah. Pastor Malinak is the pastor of Brian Baptist Church in Ogden, Utah. I'm the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Logan, Utah, and we love to use this podcast as a platform by which to just reach out and have a conversation with our LDS neighbors and friends. And as I mentioned last week, we're doing something new this year, and that is that we are studying weekly along with the LDS Church and their Come Follow Me 2024 curriculum. And, uh, you know, we do that because we do want to better understand uh, what the LDS teaches. I mean, we certainly don't ever want to misrepresent somebody. And, um, and Pastor Malinak, I did the whole nine this past week. I mean, I I read the online lesson. I read the links to the sermons that they listed. I watched the videos. And um, and honestly, yeah. I, I, do have to gi- I do have to give the church props for this. Uh, the videos that go along with this week's reading in 1 Nephi, uh, by the time you watched all the videos, it was probably about an hour and a half long, and I, I kind of felt like I had watched a movie. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it, you know, I had it playing – on the the TV, you know, and um, I, I really feel like it helped me to kind of visualize it as I read yeah. it. Yeah, and so um, they you do know, give a lot of information, like for the for teachers that are preparing. Uh, it's very possible for a teacher to be very prepared um, for the lessons. That's uh, uh, you know, preparation's always good. I think uh, also I'd like to point out to our LDS neighbors that this is not the first time I've read through the Book of Mormon, um, and the same for Brother Brandon. Uh, we yep. both read the Book of Mormon in the past. Uh, for me, it's been a few years, um, probably longer than you, Brandon, but uh, we are both reading the Book of Mormon again as we go through this. Uh, so we we're not just uh, speaking, you know. We're trying to do our homework on it as well. Yeah, actually, um, we're still here in Mississippi. We were supposed to uh, fly back to Utah today, and we got about thirty minutes down the road, and Southwest sent me a text message that my flight from Memphis was delayed by two hours, which was going to cause us to miss our connecting flight in Denver, and so we just had to reschedule to tomorrow, but. Yeah, we had actually um, we pulled the videos up and we're watching it on the 4K TV in my in-laws' living room, and, <laughs> and me and my son were kind of talking about this and that. And he's, I'll, I'll tell you some of the things he said. He's really uh, Wesley's really analytical, and he was bringing out some things I was already thinking. But yeah, so I guess just to dive right into the lesson. So uh, this is obviously the week of January the eighth, and the title is, I Will Go and Do, and that is from the reading of First Nephi chapters 1 through 5. And really for our non-LDS listeners, I just want to back up and kind of give a 30,000-foot view of what we're talking about. Uh, the Book of Mormon for the LDS Church 
there's definitely doctrine in there. There's no doubt about it. Sure. Yeah. But it really is intended to be more of a history book. Yeah. Um, for some ancient peoples, the the Nephites, the Lamanites, and the Jaredites. And I don't want to go into too much detail in that, except to say that in this first section, it deals with a prophet by the name of Lehi, who gets a vision from the Lord that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And God commands Lehi and his sons, most notably Nephi, uh, to get these brass plates from a man named Laban, which is basically their the genealogy of their family. And then they will eventually make their way across the ocean to what we know as the Americas, where they establish these, you know, giant civilizations. And that's way on down the line from where we're at in this week's reading. But that's just kind of uh, yeah. an overview. And uh, but we're just going to come out and say it like and this is understand, you know, the reason that we do this podcast, like we don't get our jollies from bashing anybody or throwing any stones. And that's that's not what we're doing now. But uh, the truth is what sets people free. Lies are what enslaves people. It's the, you know, M.O. of Satan. He is the father of lies. Mm. And, you know, so. We understand that uh, we just we just don't believe this is historical uh, at all. Right. We don't yeah. we don't we don't see any evidence. We don't see any way that it, it is compatible with the message of the Old and New Testament. There's no archaeological evidence. There's no. And if you think about it, too, uh, Pastor Malinak, um, you know, you're dealing with, especially in this first uh, section, you're dealing with Lehi who was a supposed prophet around the year 600 BC. Right. There's no there's no record of him or his family right in yeah, Israel, right. the Middle East or in the Americas. Like there's just in other words, if you step outside of Joseph Smith's mind and his writings. Yeah. We have no we ha- there none of these things would even be known about at all. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, this per- first part of First Nephi is taking place between Jerusalem and the Red Sea and the northern re- region around the Gulf of Aquaba. Um, and, uh, of course, the uh, LDS archaeologists have um, done significant research and pinpointed, in fact, they give um, the coordinates for a brook that um, is mentioned in in the um, I think the second or third chapter, and uh, they have pinpointed that and uh, offer that as proof that this is speaking authentically. But, but the thing that is interesting is that uh, you have a lot of I mean, like there's a lot of prophetic activity at this time. It's around 600 BC is the setting. Um, this was the time when Jeremiah the prophet was writing. There were other prophets, uh, in fact, quite a few that were contemporaries of Jeremiah. Uh, so this is, it's not like this was from a backwards time. It's not like there was, uh, there was no recording taking place. Um, and in these first five chapters, Jeremiah is mentioned by name, but there's not any kind of like, there's, there's, um, absolutely nothing to connect Nephi to any of these things. Um, 
any of what we see in the Old Testament as well. I, th- I think that's uh, the first point that we wanted to make, and we kind of wanted to go through. Uh, we were we put together about five points that we want to make um, based on this lesson uh, here. So maybe we just want to start uh, into those points. Yeah, so we had just written down five points that we wanted to cover about this first section. And let me say this, we we do not want to become a broken record for the Book of Mormon is false, and here's why. I mean, yeah. uh, but we want people to know the truth and the freedom that's yeah. found in Jesus Christ. That's and right. anything and any lie that would take away from or distract from that, you know, that's why we're kind of trying to shake the foundations a little bit, not just to shake something up or to change somebody's mind. We want to convince people of the freedom in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get there. But just some things that we, again, the reason that we're going through the Come, Follow Me curriculum is so that we can follow along and give a review from a Christian perspective. So that's really what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, But the first point that we had written down is that Nephi doesn't speak like a contemporary of any Old Testament prophet. And just some things that I had jotted down. You know, the Book of Mormon claims to be another testament of Jesus Christ, just like the Old and New Testament, and then they claim Mormon. But I find it interesting that the Old Testament begins with, in the beginning, God. Yes. And then uh, in John... Chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah, that's right. And so you, you, have, you have both the Old and New Testaments opening with, you know, God. Yeah. And then, well, Nephi begins with the word I, yeah. which I, I just find that kind of ironic. And, of course, it's, it's I, Nephi. It's, yes. But you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, know even, even as I um, – went through this week's lesson, you know, there was, there was just some things that just scream, uh, that this is fraudulent. Yeah. Like this was, this is written from somebody. This is coming from the mind of someone who lives in the 1800s and is trying to read back these imaginary things into history. Like just some things off the top of my head. Okay. So even the names that are used here, like, Lehi and Nephi and and Sam. I mean, these are not even Hebrew names. And no, right. You know, if Nephi does have an origin, which that's up for debate, but if it does, it's Egyptian in origin. And what Jewish prophet would name their son an Egyptian <laughs> by an Egyptian name, or yeah. even like uh, like one of Nephi's brothers, which uh, which is Sam? Okay, Sam is an American English name. I recognize that people will say, well, it's it's just the abbreviation of Samuel, which is a Hebrew name. But here's the thing. The Jews would have never shortened that name because no. of its meaning. Uh, no, right. You, you know, like Emmanuel. No, yeah, yeah. It, t- it removes the whole meaning because like Emmanuel means God with us. Yeah. Samuel means God hears. Yeah. So a Jew would never remove the L. So again, this is an Americanized, uh, yeah, an acronizing of this. Laban is a Syrian name, 
And so, you know, it's really, I think, when you're looking at um, these chapters, what you're seeing is someone who had a vague familiarity with the Old Testament um, and knew that there were certain things that needed to be said, but there's not there's not a stylistic connection that can be made between any of the prophets of the Old Testament with Nephi at all. Now, I think, and my phone keeps freezing up, but um, I I was interested because um, the the first book of Nephi opens by saying that these were translated into um, Hebrew and Egyptian, um, which was uh, an interesting thing to me. Um, there are not, you know, I don't know what the problem is. Oh, there we go. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, it's First Nephi 1, 2. Yea, I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. And again, this is where there's not really any way to connect this to um, any of the prophets of the Old Testament, um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, uh, Micah, uh, Zephaniah, those guys, um, those prophets don't talk that way. They don't talk about um, what language they're using um, at all. They, uh, I, I also noticed in chapter 2 and verse, I think, of verse 11, um, that uh, Nephi says, I wanted to catch this. Um, now this he spake because of the stiff neckedness of Laman and Lemuel, for behold, they did murmur in many things against their father because he was a visionary man. Now, visionary man is another term that is unknown in the Old Testament or anywhere in the Bible. That's not that's not a term, a Hebrew term. There's no and of course, there's not a claim that this is translated from Hebrew at all. Joseph Smith translated this uh, again, not knowing a language, as we covered in the last lesson. Uh, he didn't know the language. He used a peepstone. He translated it through his hat, um, and it really claims that uh, God told him what the translation was. So there was not any ability to even confirm any of these things. Uh, there's no ability to go back and, and critique the translation of it whatsoever because there is not. I mean, it's it claims to be a translation, but there's no translation of it. And one other thing I just wanted to throw out there on this point before we kind of move on, because we will, as we go through the Book of Mormon, I can just see ourselves beating this horse to death. Yeah. But we do also see the word church and I understand that even in the Bible, the word church can simply mean assembly, and it is used one time of Israel in the Old Testament. However, we're going to see very early on in the book of First Nephi that when it talks about the church, it's talking about the New Testament Christian concept, which an Old Testament Jew would have had absolutely no understanding no, of at right. all. That's right. That's right. So again, you're just kind of anachronizing things and, and reading right. them back. But let me, and I know this is not <clears throat> something that you and I 
discuss before the podcast, but this is just something I wanted to throw out before we get to point number two. Um, I've actually talked to, and it hasn't been many. I don't want to act like this is a big representation of the LDS church, but I have talked to a few Mormons as of late that basically admitted, yeah, I know that uh, as far as the history goes, uh, the Book of Mormon you know, ha- doesn't have a leg to stand on. But to me, it doesn't really matter because you can still right. uh, find good principles to live by. Yeah. It helps people yeah. live a more holy life. It allows them to live closer to God. But, w- I mean, why is that problematic? Yeah. Well, for one thing, because uh, the Book of Mormon presents a false god uh, and a false gospel, the Mormon church is presenting a um, plan of salvation that is not found in Scripture and is contrary to the gospel that's preached in Scripture. And so as a result of that, uh, the people who believe the Book of Mormon uh, and believe in the Mormon faith are um, being sent to hell. They they are, the church itself is is, um, sending them to hell, and so, and yes. that's not a good thing. So, making people more moral, you know, I I would not necessarily agree with that. Uh, number one, but number two, um, it's not moral to give people a false assurance of uh, eternal bliss that is independent of the Word of God and contrary to the Word of God. It's not. That's not good. That's not moral. At all, um, so you know, and I, I've had this discussion with many who have told me. In fact, one young lady just told me flat out, "I don't believe in Joseph Smith. I don't believe the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that the God of Mormonism is the God of the Bible. I believe the God of the Bible is the true God. I don't believe that the Mormon plan of salvation is the true plan of salvation. I believe that the gospel that's presented in the Bible." is the true gospel. She said this, but she said, I wouldn't leave because the Mormon church does so much good for so many people. And I pointed out to her that if a person were to follow the teaching of the Book of Mormon, they would go to hell when they die. And I said, that's not good. Even if you're feeding homeless people and being nice to a lot of people, if ultimately your religion winds up damning thousands of souls, millions of people to hell, um, then that's not good. Not good at all. No. No, it's a it's a faulty foundation, yes. regardless of what the outside walls look like. And so we have got to get to point number two, and I'll just let you take that if you would. Yeah. Okay, the controversy in Nephi is bizarre and strikes us as much ado about nothing. And what I mean by that is that the controversy here, and this is where, you know, again, there are vague allusions um, to uh, things that would connect Nephi to the biblical prophets. Um, For example, the sins of Jerusalem um, that are named, which the prophets would really elaborate on and would call men to repentance towards God um, and and do this uh, faithfully. But... um, in Nephi, there's this that that's almost like uh, the backstory. Like there's th- that's lurking in the background. But the big issue is within the family of Lehi, and uh, Nephi, the youngest son, 
is kind of the champion for his dad. That was another point that I was going to say where uh, Nephi is very different than anything in the Old Testament, because Lehi purports to be Nephi telling us what his father, who was a prophet, is saying. Um, that's that's just unheard of. It's it's um, very then, odd. Yeah, but then on top of that um, is that really what you have is a family conflict where the two older brothers are just not excited about believing their dad and what their dad is saying. And their dad is not really making any claims that um, would be verifiable or confirmable. It's just God told me to do this and you better believe it. And Nephi gets a revelation that his dad is telling the truth. And so he becomes kind of the champion for his dad. But then, and where it takes to me a really odd twist is that the big controversy is over brass plates that contain the family genealogy. And they're instructed to go to Laban and get that, get those brass plates and uh, recover them so that the genealogy won't be lost. And uh, Laban, of course, won't give it to him. And so then, um, you know, the two older brothers side with Laban, and God tells Nephi to kill Laban and to murder him. And so Nephi murders him, impersonates him, puts his clothes on, uses impersonates him in order to get his servant to go along with him, and then essentially steals these brass plates that contain the family genealogy. Now, I say much ado about nothing. Number one, uh, Israel was very good at keeping uh, family records, and yeah. <laughs> you can see that all throughout the Bible. Uh, it's unheard of that family genealogies would be recorded on brass plates. Uh, And it certainly was never, they were never at risk of losing the family history because the family history was recorded publicly. This was, this, I mean, this was a sacred record um, and uh, recorded in many places. So, so that uh, you weren't, I mean, when you look in the chronologies, in the Old Testament, it's evident that these chronologies were well known to the people. Uh, they rehearsed them. They reviewed them. Uh, they were very familiar with them. Uh, so it's, it, but even it's unclear when you read it um, why it was so urgent to recover these brass plates. What that has to do with anything in the book? It screams fiction, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I and I I know that that's highly offensive to our LDS friends, but at the same time, we we've got to we got to step back and say, okay, I, I understand that you've committed a significant part of your life to this, but I'm telling, I'm speaking as an outsider looking in um, and someone who's familiar, but saying your claim is that the Book of Mormon is the restoration. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the restoration of the gospel. I would expect when I'm looking in the Book of Mormon to see significant elements of the gospel that were lost and that the Book of Mormon is clearly recovering. 
And that's not happening in these first five chapters at all. You just have no. what, again, much ado about nothing. I mean, to have that recorded on brass plates is as shocking to me as if it would have said that he used a Xerox machine to, to <laughs> make up. I mean, it just, yeah, it's just right. so out of place, you know. Oh. Yeah, and can you imagine trying to record all that detail on brass plates? Um, it's just, it just it's not even it's not really feasible. Uh, no, no, and it's not it doesn't strike you as authentic in any way uh at all. Uh it but but I think that kind of leads into the next point that we want to um what we want to make. Do you want to read that? Yeah, so number 3 uh Nephi sends a clear message Believe because I say so. The book is obviously conditioning people to accept claims on the say-so of the prophet. Characters in this book are measured by their acceptance or rejection of the prophet with little regard for God. The Sunday school lesson approaches faith in the same way. Yeah. Well, I use the word fideism in in that I, I would describe it as fideism. It's fideistic. So fideism is um, it, it's it resembles faith. It kind of apes the Christian faith, um, but it is faith that is belief for the sake of believing. So God doesn't call us to believe what there's no reason to believe, and He never. And this is something because God has the authority to command us to believe. Uh, because just on his say so, but he does not do that. No, he gives us every reason to believe. Fideism says that belief is everything. Just believe. Just believe. That's yeah. the message all the time. So there's no reason given. There's no warrant given. No justification uh, given for the truth claim whatsoever. There is simply belief for belief's sake. That's fideism. And this thing, th- this thing really strikes me as uh, fideism lived large. This is yeah. this is what the prophets are uh, are doing. That it, the prophet Nephi uh, and Lehi both. Uh, they're making a demand. God told me this, and if you don't believe it, you are the one who's wrong and in danger. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's a difference between faith and blind faith. As Christians, we have faith. But the diff- here's the difference. Blind faith says that belief itself makes something true. Right. The Christian yeah. faith says this is true. Therefore, I believe that's right. And I know I know even last week and this week as well, we are talking about evidences, but we don't believe like we don't begin with the evidence. I mean, I was I was saved by grace as a 14 year old hearing the gospel message. But everything that I've read and studied since has just affirmed that. Yeah. You know, so we don't use this evidence as confirmation, but it certainly is affirmation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you come to this, first of all, if if you're a true believer in Nephi, then you're coming to this, and you know what we're saying is definitely going to be offensive to you. We're saying, what in the world is the big deal here? You're saying, well, it's a big deal because Nephi says it's a big deal. Yeah. Um but 
but that's all uh, to i'm sure i'm sure that people i mean there, there are people who are very dedicated to um to defending everything in the book of mormon and everything in the lds faith and i'm sure that they've come up with some explanation for why this is crucial um but it, it again that's why we say this doesn't really it's more than just one off it's many off from what you see in the old yeah. testament uh, the Old Testament is dealing with Israel's relationship with God and Israel's rejection of God as the sole authority and the sole object of their worship. And Israel worshiping God in form, um, but not in reality, not with their heart. Nephi isn't talking about that at all. It, this, the whole thing is that God told me to go down to the Red Sea and God told me to uh, God told me to go recover these brass plates, and you better do it. And that's all. And so, and and you know, again, uh, the conditioning that's taking place here is that the brothers are condemned. The older brothers are condemned. And in fact, as we go farther into Nephi, uh, we'll see the level, the degree to which they're condemned. Merely because they don't take their dad's word for it, um, they and and they don't take their younger brother Nephi's word for it. Now that's the big deal here. So, in other words, you're supposed to just blindly accept the subjective message of the prophet. Yes, which, which is, is what we see in present day. That's right, and that's what we're objecting to in the LDS yes. faith as well. And consistently, we're pointing to the fact that there's not. There's not even an objective presentation. This this book is almost, in the way that the story is told and the story that is told, the book is attempting to condition the members of the LDS Church to blindly embrace whatever the prophet tells you. And if you and don't, if you don't, you'll be like the bad brothers. That's right. And if you do, you'll be like the hero, Nephi. Yeah, Nephi. Yep, that's that's right. And That's this right. really, this is a perfect springboard into point number four that we wanted to get to. Yeah. And that is that the demand that Nephi murder Laban is immoral, arbitrary, and contrary to the holiness of God. And I actually, I have this pulled up on my computer here. I want to read this. This is uh, from First Nephi chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. So just to give you context, Nephi uh, goes back to Laban's house after he has stolen their valuables and he never did give them these brass plates. So Nephi goes back and he finds Laban in a drunken passed out. He's just laid out on the floor. And in first Nephi four, beginning verse 10, it says, it came to pass that I was constrained by the spirit that I should kill Laban. But I said in my heart, never at any time have I shed the blood of man and I shrunk and would that I might not slay him. And the Spirit said unto me again, Behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Yea, and I also knew that he had sought to take away mine own life. Yea, and he would not hearken unto the commandments of the Lord. And he also had taken away our property. And it came to pass the Spirit said unto me again, Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. And, of course, uh, Nephi goes on to kill Laban with his own sword. And the reason this is such a terrifying precedent mm -hmm. is because we never see this 
in the Old or New Testament. And what I mean is we never find an incident where God commands an individual to murder another individual. Now, we do find situations like Joshua, where God Mm -hmm. commanded Joshua and the armies of Israel to eradicate the Canaanites. But this is a just act of war. This is not cold-blooded murder. And so... Yeah, you know, same thing I, with Hewing Agag, um, yeah. which Samuel did when uh, when Saul wouldn't do it. Um, but God had commanded that the Amalekites be wiped out entirely, and along with them all the Canaanites. Um, and that had to do with um, the perverse, wicked, wicked yes. behavior um, and the wicked way that the Canaanites and the Amalekites not only interacted with Israel, but also the kind of debauchery that was involved in their worship. Yeah, and honestly, this sets a really terrifying precedent. (laughs) Because if the Holy Spirit of God can tell an individual to kill another individual— why couldn't he do it again? I mean, as a Baptist living in Utah, that scares me to death. <laughs> well, it reminds me of the Lafferty brothers because they yes, also exactly. claimed that God told them that they were to kill their sister-in-law, and that they did, I mean, in a brutal fashion. Uh, and it's interesting to me because they claimed that um, their claim was that God told them to do it, that they had had a vision. Um, I think it was either Dan or Ron. I, I can't remember which one was the actual murderer, um, I think it was Dan, um, that said that he had had a revelation that he was to do this. And in fact, he had talked about that uh, with several members of his family. And I think that they just didn't think that he would actually carry through with it and do it. And then, of course, he did um, and nearly severed that poor lady's head um, when he did it. Um, Just very brutal with it, but this is something that it actually brings up um, probably the ugly side of the LDS Church, and that is um, which revelations are acceptable and which ones are unacceptable uh, within the church. If God speaks to us through revelation, He can speak to anybody and reveal anything. And if we're required to believe some revelations, what is the standard for which ones we're to believe and which ones we're not to believe? Certainly, those is, many will say, well, whatever the church says, the church is the authority. Okay, well, if the church is the authority, then revelation is not, number one. Number two, Joseph Smith certainly didn't subject his visions or revelations to the church at all. He subjected the church to his revelations and visions, and that's a big difference. So I think that... Um, Again, it's interesting that the patterns for the LDS faith are set in these first few books uh, of or first few chapters of the Book of Mormon. Uh, that we are already seeing uh, the groundwork being laid for the kind of uh, approach to God that we find consistently in the LDS Church. Yeah, because again, if you're just blindly trusting the subjective whim of a prophet. There's no way to counterbalance that. There's no way that you can say, well, you, you really didn't hear that or that's not true or because that person becomes the standard of truth. Yeah. And yeah. so if you if you abandon a biblical mandate, I mean, you're really just left with a circus. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, the idea that God would send people, you know, first of all, command them to go and recover their brass plates that have their family genealogy on it. And then secondly, that when the person wouldn't give it to them would demand the murder of that person. And then thirdly, um, and beyond that, um, the whole impersonation of that person as an act of deception. Um, you know, these kinds of things are not consistent with anything we see in the Old Testament at all. No. And this really brings us uh, back around to the main point of what we want to talk about, and we are running out of time here. But this is this is the reason that we do this, and that is uh, point number five that we hadn't written down, uh, that the grace of the gospel is missing entirely from this whole passage. Yep, that's right. And so, um, you know, when you look at this, like, so this is the week two lesson, Come Follow Me 2024. We're going through First Nephi 1 through 5. Um, when you go, when you scroll through the lesson, uh, they give a link to a sermon by the Apostle Dallin Oaks entitled, What Has Our Savior Done for Us? And in that particular sermon, he quotes Joseph Smith, and I, I just want to read this quote briefly. It says, The prophet Joseph Smith summarized all of this, talking about the gospel, in our third article of faith. Quote, We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. That last statement is really a misnomer. It's it's a it's an oxymoron. It's it's a an absolute contradiction in terms because you know the the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it it doesn't have any laws and ordinances. Like I've never right. yeah. seen that. Right. <laughs> That's right. Yes. So you're not well, you're not saved. And this is this is the principal difference. I mean, granted, there's many of them, but the principal difference between Biblical historical Christianity and Mormonism is itself the gospel. Yeah. Um, the gospel in Mormonism is basically that whatever Jesus did is pretty insignificant because all he really did in the end is hand us a baton and we're supposed to run it the rest of the way. Yeah. And he didn't really accomplish anything. Yeah. Whereas in biblical Christianity, his death, burial, and resurrection satisfied. The just demands of God's law, it satisfied the wrath of God the Father, and that's why we're not going to hell, not because we're good, but because Christ is good, and, and we, have, we have forsaken the illusion of our own self-righteousness, and we put our faith solely in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Yes, amen. And you know, the Old Testament prophets preach that same grace. Exactly. That's, that's the other thing, is that what you see in the prophets of the Old Testament is a consistent message to Israel, that Israel was um, worshiping idols and false gods, and God was saying to them that these are not God, and you are to worship me alone. And because of this, but also because of the way you oppress the poor and needy and so on, that I am going to deal with you and I'm going to punish you. But when God says this, he says this consistently. All the prophets go back to it over and over. 
And that is that God is doing this because he wants a people for his name. He's building a house for his name. This is the promise that he made to David. Uh, In fact, when David asked to build the temple, God told him no. Uh, God said, you're not going to build a house for my name. I'm going to build a house for your name. Um, I'm going to build your house, and then you can build, because God was building a house for his name. And so this is something that, um, you know, people miss a lot of times because they look at the Old Testament and they've been told that God is like this ogre in the Old Testament. But actually, we see the grace of God so clearly and vividly in the Old Testament, uh, where God is consistently calling his people to repentance, uh, telling them, this is how I'm going to deal with you. You need to turn. You need to get right. Um, but then providing, and that's the thing, he's always pointing to Jesus Christ as that's the right. provision, because his wrath is not going to be satisfied, even in the punishing of his people. His wrath is going to be satisfied in the punishment of Jesus Christ, as Christ bears the wrath of God for our sin in our place and dies our death. And, and then by his resurrection... Well, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that God was satisfied, that his wrath was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ so that there needs to be no more sacrifice for sin uh, because Christ has, he is the propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies God's justice. And a lot of people look at it and say, well, it seems like a wrathful God in the Old Testament and a graceful God in the New Testament. You just said we see the grace of God in the Old Testament, but we also see the wrath of God in the New Testament. That's right. Because the the wrath of God the Father was poured out on yeah. Jesus Christ because he was wearing our sins in his body right. on the tree. That's very vivid. It, the, yes. The torture and the cruelty of the cross uh, is a vivid display of God's wrath against our sin. And God was gracious to us in that he displayed his wrath against sin. He poured out his wrath against sin on Jesus, who was the one who could bear it, as opposed to you and I who cannot bear it. So God displayed his wrath. It was a vivid display of the wrath of God in the cruelty of the cross. We have to remember that. that but, but God was merciful and gracious to us in that he poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. Yes. The, the torment of hell... The, the fire and brimstone, the lake of fire, what Jesus spoke of as the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And he said that many times over in warning of the uh, consequences for our sin. Um, yeah. it's, it's gracious that God would pour out his wrath on his son rather than on us. And in the resurrection of Christ, God demonstrated that the death of Jesus satisfied his demands for justice so that our sin is paid for and we can be forgiven and pardoned by God. That's a blessing to us. Absolutely. And as we kind of come in for a landing, I would just like to um, pose this to our LDS listeners. I've talked to so many Mormons, and I, I ask them about their gospel, and I say, well, you know, have you done enough at this point in your life that if you died, you know for sure that you're going to be in the top level of heaven, to use our language, with God? 
Mm-hmm. And they almost without exception say, no, I, I don't know that. And I said, well, could you ever get to a place where you could know? Yeah. Uh, again, almost without exception, they say no. And I say, well, how is that good news? Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's good news. If you're wondering, it, well, I was going to say, if you're wondering if you're good enough, I go ahead and tell you the answer is no. Yeah. But Jesus well, Christ is good enough. It is such a uh, performance pressure cooker. And, uh, and that's what we would plead with our listeners to hear us on this, that the assurance that God gives, the promises that he makes, uh, that we can know. In 1 John 5, 13, um, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Absolutely. You know, our LDS friends, or the LDS church has taught that we'll all be in the resurrection, um, that really the level of heaven depends on us and our performance. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Number one, the Bible doesn't teach levels of heaven. Number two, the Bible doesn't teach that anything depends on our performance, nothing whatsoever. It depends entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest on Him entirely. And that's what we're pleading with you to do. And so the this lesson, just to close this out, this week's lesson was all, all about you know keeping the commandments of God. And yeah. the truth is that none of us have done that. We've right. you know Jesus not only had to come and die for us, he had to live for us. He had to live the perfect life that we could never live. And so again, it's it's not about us and our goodness. It's about Christ and His goodness and His sacrifice. And so. Again, not only does uh, you know these first five chapters of Nephi not have any historical bearing, but they really pre- present a false picture of who God is and what the gospel is. So yes, that's right. That's right. But uh, we have to shut it down. You know, I know this is going to come to a shock to a lot of people, but. Baptist pastors tend to go over. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, long-winded, yeah. But if you have any uh, questions, comments, concerns, uh, you know, feel free to email us. My email address is preacherofgrace at yahoo.com, or you can visit our church website, gracebaptistlogan.org. And uh, Pastor Malinak, give your contact information. Yeah, our, uh, my email address is P Malinak. That's P as in Pastor, M A L L I N A K at gmail.com. And our church website is www.berean baptist utah.com. We'll be sure to join us next week as we go through week three of Come Follow Me 2024. We love you and God bless.